Welcome to Social Sessions. I'm delighted to be joined by the CEO of Favour UK, the faces and voices of recovery. As a survivor of trauma and addiction herself, she has shown amazing resilience and innovation to become the founder of the first recovery charity in Scotland. She has tremendous passion for her work and is an outspoken and fearless advocate for change and reform in the recovery world. She is a wonderful woman with an abundance of knowledge and a very hard work ethic. It's a delight to introduce Anne-Marie Ward. Welcome to Social Sessions, Anne-Marie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That's a very kind and generous introduction. I love it, thank you. <laughs> no, it's totally true. Um, so just basically what I do with all the guests, Anne-Marie, is kind of take them back to their own kind of uh, history and childhood. Um, so where did you, Glasgow, born and bred? No, but before we go there, I just want to say thank you for being so thorough in your preparation for this because... It's really, really helpful to me to have a think about some of the stuff that you've asked me and I really appreciate it and shows great professionalism. So, no, originally I'm from Adrosan. Right. Um, I was born down in Ayrshire. My parents are from the Gorbals in Glasgow. Um, but I was the first. I've got two elder brothers who, who were, one was born in Glasgow, one was born in Paisley. And then there was me born down in Adrosan and my younger sister who is who was also born down there. We lived, we came back to Glasgow for two years between the ages of 10 and 12 for me, where we lived in Parkhead for a couple of years. And then we moved back down to Salcoats. So Aye. when people ask me where I'm from, I'm like, Adrosan, Salcoats. <laughs> a wee bit of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but I, le I left home really young and I've lived in a variety of different places since then. Landon in Glasgow 11 years ago. Aye. And... Uh, I think I'll be here for a wee while yet. Aye. So what was, um, obviously, different people have different childhoods, different upbringings and all that. What was it like what, for you? Um, is that well, your upbringing, Anne-Marie? I grew up in an alcoholic home. Uh, my father's alcoholism when we were young was particularly bad. That meant that, you know, my mum was always short of money because uh, he was either in the pub or the bookies or, or out of work. You know, I grew up in the 70s. There was a lot of unemployment then. So there was a lot of poverty. Um, went to bed cold and hungry like a lot of kids did in the 70s. I don't think that we were particularly, you know, I'm not claiming to be hard done by. You know, there was a lot of people experienced that poverty then. Um, there was a lot of violence in the home as well. Uh, you know... My mother suffered very severely, God rest her. And, and as did we, you know, as children, we were also physically abused. Uh, and there was a lot of fear in the home growing up. You know, it wasn't a safe place. I loved going to school, actually, because school was a wee, you know, you knew you, there was, you were safe in school. Um, and there was sexual abuse as well, uh, from a very young age. So, you know, that probably led to me being quite shut down. Um, certainly very separated from myself. Um, always very cautious about where I was and hyper alert. Uh, you know, frightened all the time, basically. Uh, and there was rare moments, you know, in my childhood, very rare. In fact, I remember somebody saying to me when I first got clean that the longer you stay clean, the more you'll remember happy times uh, from your childhood. And I don't, you know, I've been clean for 26 years 
And the few moments that do come to me are, you know, we're usually spent in friends' houses or in school. So, yeah, home was, was a frightening place. Obviously, looking at you today, you're a kind of titan for recovery and you're uh, very outspoken. And I think it's wonderful. We've had some great conversations with you. How did you manage personally to kind of overcome that kind of trauma and what kind of tools did you use, Anne-Marie, to kind of... Well, the first tools I picked up were drugs, <laughs> you know, alcohol and other drugs. Um, and I think that they did serve me um, in a way that, you know, they were my reprieve from a life, basically, that I had no way of coping with or knowing how to cope with. So I was also always had that really strong work ethic as well you know like you're fine as long as you go to your work Aye. so um so although i became addicted and used substances very young um, my first drink at 11 was probably a daily user of some substance or other from i was about 14 15 onwards uh, until i got clean and sober at 25 um so yeah, those were the first tools that I used actually, substances, you know, making money. Aye. You know, I was completely self-sufficient. Um, never thought for a moment that anybody would help me. So I knew I had to be self-reliant. So I had this real steel core brought up by, you know, really uh, matriarchal women uh, has, who were it's quite conflicting actually because although we, we were Irish Catholic, um, you know, all the men were, a lot of the men during the 70s and 80s were unemployed. Aye. Um, or picking up bits of work piecemeal, you know, or having to go away for work. And uh, the women, the sort of mantra that I would hear from the women in my family would be, you know, the men are all useless bastards, <laughs> you know. But, Just like my granny. <laughs> aye, they're all useless bastards, you know, they're either in the bookie or the pub. And, and that was true, but the minute they walked into the house, they would be lifted and laid. They were treated like kings, ah, you know, so you. that sort of real conflicting messaging, um, you know, just, aye. So they, may, they were matriarchal in the sense that they were hoarding shit together. And, you know, my ma, I tell this story, my ma would send me down to my granny's for, like, I go down to your granny and ask for half an oxo. Now, my <laughs> granny had... My ma was one of 13, you know. So she had a whole set of her, of her own children that she was cooking for, you know, and, you know, half an ox, oh, my God. Know. You know, like, it was rough. I'm, I'm not even joking about that. So, But there was a sense that the women were, you know, trying to pull shit together. And I think if you look at any social movement, Aye. you know, it's always the women that are pulling it together behind the scenes and... Right. And there's men up front that are brilliant articulators. You know, if you think think of Martin Luther King and right. even you know various social movements throughout history, it's it's the women that are doing the graph behind the scenes. Um, what is that famous saying? Isn't that you're only you're only strong as the women behind you. And right. um, I totally believe to looking at mine and um, come from my background, come from the the long time I, I served in prison and stuff. Family with my partner. I wouldn't be the person um, that, I, that that I've come become today, and in my house as well, it was kind of similar in the way where uh, my dad used to go out working and my mum. But we, I mean, we were fine, but it was a similar kind of way my dad would go out and then he would have a drink at the weekend, and it was just 
seemed to be that was the kind of thing, the end thing went in Glasgow. There was the normal, I always remember a video where it was the Oasis brothers, the Gallagher brothers, and uh, I think it was the older one. Was, somebody was asking him about his traumatic childhood, and he says, but sure, everybody's dad-battered their man in the 70s, you know, right. in the 80s. And I think there was a normalisation of domestic violence and poverty. Oh, and right. all, all that always goes together anyway. Not always, but, you know, generally speaking, it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? There's a, there's a fear all, you know, poverty brings its own trauma and it brings a whole load of added stress. Um I'm not saying that everybody who's poor batters their wife, do you know no, what I mean? No, no, I know what you mean, but... You know what I'm saying, aye, so... So it's obviously, like, there's that, the, the, the kind of outlook on this day, do you think that's kind of changed now? Do you think there's a, there's a wee bit more respect for the, the kind of women that, that do do these things? And um, would you say there's enough, but Anne-Marie? Do you, do you think there's enough? Because obviously there's a bit, there's, there's quite a lot of kind of talk about like feminism stuff like that do you think there's enough like for the for the woman that enough kind of equality, equality? Um, i think i think domestic violence in the west coast of scotland is still very much linked to alcohol and um even you know we know the domestic violence rates goes up when the old firm play you know so i think right. there, there's still um there's still a lot of what I would call sickness, you know. Um, I think women have more opportunities now to progress and advance um, themselves if that's what they choose to do. I think there's less opportunities for women who want to stay at home and raise Aye, children. Definitely, um, I agree with um, that. You know, and I think we, we've, we've, we've devalued that. And, right. it, and to my mind, it's probably the most important job in the world. So, Anne-Marie, obviously I know that you are, you created the first kind of recovery charity in Scotland. What do you think the the kind of, the, the whole outlook of recovery is the new? What do you think the, the, that the recovery world looks like the new? Um, I think as a movement, it's still very infantile. Um, I was speaking to somebody this morning about a lack of unity within the recovery movement. So, as you know, we campaigned around You Keep Talking, We Keep Dying um, 2019. And we saw, as a result of that, a massive investment into addiction services. And then there also became a pot of money because we argued for it. Uh, for recovery community organisations. Now, what I see happening now is that those recovery community organisations are being picked off and there's no unity between them. Mm -hmm. So there's no leadership figure or umbrella type organisation putting forward a, a union, if you like. I mean, we have the framework for one called mm -hmm. the Association of Recovery Community Organisations, but try as I might, I have still not been able to get funding or a, a volunteer to operate that mm -hmm. uh, with any sort of continuity. So we don't have any unity within the fledgling recovery mm -hmm. movement. We, we're starting to see, you know, the government pick them off one right. by one um, and, you know, sort of heal some of them up as the poster girls and boys. And that's... What that means is that when it comes to the end of their funding in four or five years' time, there'll probably be only, or three or four years' time for some of them, um, there'll probably only be one or two survive because there's no unity and 
to me, that's absolutely tragic. But it also means that we need stronger leadership figures to step up and unify. Right. Um, and, and they are there. We do have some fantastic leadership figures in Scotland who could do that, but they're currently working for organisations that don't let them speak or that right. limit how they speak or that they're frightened to step into that space. So I my, my hope would be that the the current recovery community organisations mm -hmm. wise up and uh, before their funding ends because it's coming. No, I agree with you. I think um, recovery's been a, a... We spoke a lot about recovery on this podcast and I think that the main kind of theme that seems to come, be coming through for everybody is like it's it's individual it needs it doesn't fit everybody wants you doesn't fit all mm. and it's you've got different agencies that well I, this is very interesting because it's a wee bit like you know the debates around you're a woman if you say you are you're in recovery if you say yeah and and that is great you know from a a sort of strategic level that's brilliant because everybody's included, everybody is inclusive. But actually, you know, there uh, uh, can we unpick that a wee bit? Because Aye. if I'm in recovery because I say I am, what does that mean? It, mm -hmm. it actually becomes meaningless, mm -hmm. you know. Whereas for for me, um, of course there are different, you know gradients if you like and I'm not talking about a hierarchy here because you know I know some people would like to think like being completely abstinent is the top of the grade you Aye. know but I, I would assert really really strongly that I could not heal and and for me recovery is about healing definitely it's about hope definitely um and I could not heal until I was abstinent, mm -hmm. right? From all mind and mood on drugs. So whilst I would say to somebody who's still using, you're not in recovery, I would say if you want to get the best out of your recovery, try and get a period of abstinence. Or, or certainly if you want to get a, you know, start to really heal, because most of us are, right. you know, are severely traumatised. It is completely... And I don't, you know, I would argue the bit with anybody about this. It's inaccessible when you're mm -hmm. using. You cannot get in about the depth of your pain uh, until you're abstinent. And if you're saying, if anybody wants to argue that way, mate, I'd love to get into Aye. a debate about it. But it's totally impossible. I know that. Because mm -hmm. the first time I went for therapy for the sexual abuse that I suffered as a child. I was 21 and I was using every day. Right. I was completely functioning. I, mm -hmm. At that point, I think I only had two jobs. Workaholic as well. Um, this is activity, activity junkie. As long as I'm in activity, right. I can't feel nothing. Um, and um, so, and I tried to get near it and I couldn't. It was very an intellectual process and it wasn't until I got clean and sober that I was able to actually feel the pain and the grief and the the anger um, of what I had suffered um, and the grief was being able to express the grief mm -hmm. um, was so liberating and so healing and that if you're under any sort of sedation from chemicals that pain will not come up 
not agree with you. I agree with you so much, uh, Anne-Marie, with that. And I think um, if I take myself, for example, um, I'm on pre-gabbling for my back, but I'm also on it for anxiety. Um, I get prescribed by the doctor. I'm functioning. Um, I'm fine. But I, def- I definitely can't get to the depths of my trauma. And I, I totally understand that. And I know that that time's going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will come. And the, the good thing is that, and this is where a problem with having a hierarchy falls down as well, because I wouldn't say that you're not ready to experience that pain. I'd say when the, when the time is right, you will experience that pain if you want to. Do you I, know what I mean? And not everybody has to have a total, you know, ah, hero's journey. No, I agree, I agree, Do you know what I mean? And sometimes the pain, I mean, I certainly know in my first couple of years of recovery, of abstinence-based recovery, um, I was, I, I remember snottering, I was in a cafe in London where my sponsor, who was a psychodynamic cognitive behavioural therapist, by the way, she was also... Uh, an incest survivor, which, you know, gave me the green light to Aye. trust her. And she was, I think she was 13 or 14 years clean at the time. And I remember saying, I am falling apart so bad here. I don't think you're going to be able to put me back together again. Aye. And that was my main worry, that I would I would have a complete mental breakdown. And I, I did to a certain extent. I still functioned. But there was an absolute breakdown of, or breakthrough. Aye of pain, uh, identity, ego deflation, surrender, acceptance, all that stuff did, I did fall apart, but it was good. Because the building process starts? Well, there was a, a, I, and I don't want to jump straight to that building process because the, the, the power and the value of the breaking down process is tremendous, but you have to be in a safe place to do that. Aye. And I could not have done that if I if I wasn't surrounded by other people who were in recovery, who were leading an abstinence path, who were therapeutically Aye. trained, who were you know who had walked the journey that I needed I to walk. I had to be that had to be my community. I had to be surrounded by them. And all the evidence bears that out as well. If we look at um, the research around uh, social sort of, any sort of social interactions, like if you hang, basically if you hang about with, social contagion theory it's called, right? If you hang about with fat people, you'll get fat. If you hang about with smokers, you'll smoke. Um, So in that sense, I had to hang about with people who were on the journey that I was on. And um, and it's the same even now, you know, twenty six years later, clean and sober. Um, I want I'm always striving, like a mad workaholic, Aye. to um, to better and to to heal more, to be able to love more, to be able to communicate better, to be able to um make the world a better place. You know Aye. that is my thing. So uh in order for me to do that, I have to be with other people who are trying to do that as well. You know, and I have to be with other trauma survivors who understand when I go back into, or, you know, if I am, if I'm not regulated or if I'm reacting emotionally to something, I have to be able to know and have those other people around about me who have experienced that and who can hold space for me and who who can say, you're doing good 
even right. though even though you maybe didn't get that right there or you didn't get it perfect or you didn't do it as well as you know other people are judging you for mm-hmm. it's it's good enough for me and I love you and I've got lots of those people in my life thank god no I think um obviously we attended the Gabber Matty um the conference on Saturday and he talks about interconnectedness relationships um being crucial to that kind of being able to um dig deep to get inside that that trauma and 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 meet it head on um so no I, I totally agree with you on that Anne-Marie um and I yeah I I, I, I don't think it's people when they obviously there's a lot of people say oh you're no you're no in recovery when you're no abstinent blah blah, blah. I agree with that that you're, 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 you're known full recovery but whatever suits somebody is my opinion is whatever suits somebody and whatever at that time at that time and and you know I've got a deep deep faith and a higher power that I call God you know and I say it'll happen in God's time not in your time but if you're willing it'll happen and I think there's people that are abstinent as well you know who are outright mental and emotional defectives you know so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that being abstinent, you know, puts you into full recovery. There is there is a process there that you have to engage in. I know many people who are absent from alcohol and other drugs, and but they're acting it and all sorts of other obsessive compulsive, compulsive emotions and stuff like that. Well, sex, power, greed, food, exercise. Aye. You know, that's all, you know, so it's the obsessive compulsive part of addiction that I'm no longer engaged in and haven't been engaged in for a long time in any area of my life, even workaholism, although mm-hmm. I, I'm a grafter, you know, and I'll always be a grafter. And, my, you know, for me, my son's moved out. Um, I've got, like, really great friends and I've got a, a good social life, but I've got a lot more time. I'm, I'm, I'm single, so... Aye. Um, I don't have a partner that sort of, you know, so I I, I don't regulate my work life as much as what I, sh- I probably could. Right. Um, and I love my work. I, I absolutely love my work. And I feel compelled uh, in that area, but not compulsed. And right. there is a difference. You know? Oh, you can tell just by, obviously, when I was researching you about Anne and looking at Favour UK and stuff, you can tell the feedback. Um, that you're you're really highly thought of and that you've you've saved a lot of lives. You can tell that, um, and that will kind of move on to my kind of next kind of uh, question. That what what kind of differences? Do, I know you kind of looked at the think some of the recovery models in England. What what do you think is kind of the difference between Scotland and England? What do you think the dynamics are? Is there different dynamics? There is massively different dynamics. So in England, there's two things that are different Scotland our addiction services come through the public sector for the most part the majority of the budget comes through the public sector so that's social workers and nurses who are mainly engaged in Scotland and trying to help people who are addicted right in England the majority of the budget not all of it but the majority of it comes through the third sector and what the third sector done and this was about 14, 15 years ago now, when they started to make the transfer from the public sector mm-hmm. into the third sector, because it was gradual, um, the third sector charities started to employ people in recovery. And they were much cheaper than nurses and social workers. So there was one sort of criticism of that was it was deprofessionalising the industry. Um, 
But also what they did, the big charities, because they saw the austerity policies, they saw the Tory government come in, right. you know, the, these guys who run these big charities are not daft, right? So they saw the austerity policies policies come in and think, right, we've got to do more or less, how are we going to do this? They also had the one of the biggest charities, well, the biggest charity now, also had the policy of bringing in 50% of their workforce to be volunteers. So what that created was a completely different culture in England and Scotland. So in England, you can walk into a service that day because it's in the third sector and not in the public sector where you have to get an appointment right. two weeks, three weeks from now. Third sector are more fleet afoot. You can walk in, you can get seen by somebody that day, probably go on a script that day. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that day you can get put in a script? Aye. Probably within a matter of hours in England, right? So that's the first thing that's different because it's third <clears throat> sector. But also you're met with a culture of hope because, like I said, over 50% of the workforce are people in recovery. And also you've got that massive volunteer workforce, so there's extra support there as right. well. Um, and a lot of that, those volunteers will be uh, like retired social workers, retired nurses, or people in recovery who have retired right. as well. So the third sector charities were not daft here um, about how they, they did this and they built that over the last so culture eats strategy for Aye. breakfast basically um, so culturally in Scotland it's really brilliant, highly committed kind, compassionate uh, highly professional nurses and social workers that are doing addiction treatment they can meet us where we're at mm -hmm. they don't know how to get us out the hole we're in I know Whereas in England, you're walking into a service, you can get a script that day, you could, you'll probably be met by somebody who's in recovery as well as a 50%, more than a 50% chance, you'll be met by somebody who's in recovery. Um, and you'll be given hope. Aye. Right? Now that's, you can't underestimate the power of that. No, it's the foundation, isn't it? It's right, it is the foundation of recovery, but it's also, you walk into a service and... Glasgow, like I said, or, you know, actually Glasgow's probably a bit better than the rest of Scotland. Um, but as far as, you know, getting appointments is concerned, uh, you, you know, you will be, you could be diverted to a recovery cafe in, in Glasgow, for instance, whereas you, you in other parts of Scotland you wouldn't be. But that's the fundamental difference. You're not getting that hope. You're not getting that immediate help Aye. when you... Um, but of course, I know the Scottish government are trying to get things in place, particularly the MAT standards, for that to happen. Now, my criticism of the MAT standards was we already had guidance, I know. the NICE guidelines in the Orange Book, and the MAT standards are essentially back, you know, they're backing up what, mm -hmm. what guidance, UK guidance we already have. Um, and it was, it was a wee bit like, well, the guidance that we have are the MAT standards on steroids, we're no implementing them. You need to look at structurally why they, they can't be implemented. And the reason why they're not implemented is primarily because it's coming through the public sector and we don't have enough investment. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough people. You, the problem's too big now. I know. <laughs> we're, 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 we're obviously a nation of drugs. Scotland has got a terrible culture for drugs. Um, and we do need as much hope as we can possibly get. And I don't think... And I'll argue to death with this one. I've had a, few, had a few thoughts with people over this, but the MAT standards, especially in prisons and settings, environment, uh, impoverished settings, stuff like that, they're not getting um, rolled out the way that um, people at the SDF and that would like you to think they are. Um, 
like you've got the uh, we went to a role play thing and uh it was like two doctors and I've, I think I've, I've mentioned this in a couple of podcasts but it was like um, two doctors and it was like the first lassie walked in and she was an addict and um, she was kind of told oh look uh, you're putting a methadone up and she was like kicked back at the kind of surgery and the second one was oh look this is how it's going to be sit down with the doctor we'll give you this option that option this option I'm like that's not happening I said I've still got friends in jail who say Sean takes you still, still takes you six to eight weeks to see anybody mental health can be three months um, and that's no far off the community. So the match standards to me are just to look good, to... Well, you know, I, I said right from the start, they were always a, what what we call a long grass committee. So it was like to make us look as if we're doing something. So they, and unfortunately, a lot of people fall for this stuff, right? So the, the big quangos like SDF and SRC, they... Say, right, we're going to have these new set of standards. We need you all to come here to this venue. We're going to have conversation cafes. We're going to have a nice lunch. We need you to put this on paper. What is it you want? And everybody feels involved. Everybody, you know, gets buy-in because they're all taking part in the conversation about it. So when the mat standards are actually produced, everybody thinks that they've produced them, but the outcomes were set, you know, I know. Right. Years ago. Yeah. Like no. when the whole process started, that whole process that took two years to get us to the match standards. And then they're delivered with a big hullabaloo. You know, we have another big day. We're in a fancy hotel where everybody gets a lunch. And, and I'm just like, for me, I'm watching it going, this is horrendous, you know, because know. I've got the strategic experience. I've got the, you know, the... I, I worked in Aye, a strategic in position I, and I can see that it's a long it's a political exercise to kick it into the long grass but it's getting by and it was the same when they started to roll out naloxone we had been advocating for naloxone for 15 years in this country and then all of a sudden it becomes you know somebody's idea or a Scottish government idea and everybody gets by and especially the peers, you know, so the peer right. network. So anybody, any criticism then of naloxone becomes about criticising peers. We, we also see the same way the methadone programme. Um, if you criticise the methadone programme, you're accused of criticising methadone users and creating mm -hmm. stigma. And that's not true. You know, the, there's... Naloxone is the, essentially the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. No. In fact, it's not even an ambulance, it's a dirty old plaster at the bottom of the cliff, you know, and and also for me, naloxone, what we've done with it is we've socially engineered people to think, general public to think that it's up to them. They're responsible now to carry naloxone. And the emphasis is then away from, well, you know, we don't, we're not sending people to rehab anymore. We're not asking people, we're not giving people the opportunity to get well. We've got a 50 million pound treatment budget in Glasgow. No. Only half a million is getting spent on uh, sending people to rehab to get wow. drugs and get... 50 yeah, million. 50 million. Um, I don't know how many, how much is getting spent on naloxone. I think we've tried to find FOI requests on that. 1.3 million on clean needles, 4 million on heroin-assisted treatment. The proposed 2.3 million on drug consumption rooms, the rest of the 50 million, I think half a million, no, it's actually less than that now, only 300,000 on the recovery cafes. Um, so the rest of that 40-odd million is going on nurses and social workers who don't know how to get us out the hole that we're in and the whole system, the ADP, you know, this, the the structure, right. but only half a million. And, and 
like the conversation we had before we started recording about following the money, there's usually ideology behind that. And for mm. me, what we've got in Scotland, um, it's not just for me, this is just fact. Um, and places where you've had things like decriminalisation, like Portugal, so everybody thinks uses the Portuguese model, oh, it works, it works. Well, Portugal had five pillars, right, within their treatment system. So they had prevention in their schools, which we don't have anymore, by the way. Um, no prevention had, at all at schools, no, many? No, no. There's no prevention programmes in our schools. I saw yesterday there was a, a retort from somebody at the Scottish Government to a comment that I had made in one of the papers saying that they had hired a private company to deliver um, prevention programmes in our schools. And uh, when we did a quick scoot on the internet about this private company last night and it showed quite clearly that it wasn't a prevention programme at all. It's certainly not a, a lot. It's certainly not a national prevention programme. But we don't teach Wayne's. Anyway, going back right. to the, the five pillars um, that Portugal had in place, because Portugal's been de-invested in mm -hmm. as well. They're starting to see their drug deaths rise. Um, as um, reintegration, abstinence-based recovery, they also mm -hmm. um, invested in methadone and getting people into treatment uh, Social integration, uh, prevention, dissuasion, mm -hmm. you know, which was the criminal justice element of it. Um, and in Scotland, we don't have any of those other pillars. We've only got harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So we've put all our eggs in one, on one ideological basket of harm reduction and nobody can argue with the premise or the principle of, of harm reduction, really. Do you know what I no, mean? No, like, it's Scottish place. It, Aye, of course it's got its place, but if we're only investing in that one area, we're in an unethical territory then. If we're only giving drug users the ability to use drugs in safe places, in safer ways, uh, and also listen to the message here, drug use is safe. Mm -hmm. And we've not got prevention programs in our schools. Wayne's are hearing this on the news, you know, about safe consumption rooms and safe injecting facilities and and safer, um, you know, safer injecting practices. You know, the, all this stuff is being discussed mm -hmm. at a high level every day. On no, no, every day, but a lot of the time, you know, it feels like every day to me. But on the news and stuff like aye, that. Aye, and Wayne's are hearing all this. Do you know what I mean? And there's no, there's no safe way to use drugs. I don't care mm -hmm. what MD says. You know. Is, and, and fundamentally as well, what the addiction industry or the sector don't understand or are in complete denial about is that my, when I'm addicted, I, it is completely uncontrollable and unmanageable. I, and, you know, people, I was on a debate on Radio 4 the other night where Someone was advocating that we should take morality at the question here, you know, like we shouldn't have any sort of moral discussion around this. We should just be being compassionate and giving, you know, drug mm -hmm. users. And I'm like, well, hang on a wee tick. You know, when I was using, I certainly lowered my own moral mm -hmm. standards, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it wasn't until I was able to get abstinent that they... I was back in alignment with my moral standards. So addiction does take away our, our integrity. Mm -hmm. It takes away our, you know, our ability to practice our own values. It does. I behaved immorally when I was in it. You know, my addiction drove 
certain amounts of immorality, you know, and that's part of this discussion. But what I'm saying is if we can't ethically, right, so bringing the ethics back in, if we're only giving people an opportunity to use drugs safely and be safer um, and we're not giving them the opportunity to get off drugs and get well mm-hmm. and rebuild the life, well, surely then that's unethical if we're mm-hmm. investing all our, the majority of reduction. our treatment in any harm reduction interventions. And this is another thing that people get confused about. So when the industry, the sector talks about treatment, they're talking about harm reduction interventions. But when the public hear the word treatment, they think about rehab, they think about detox. And so there's a mismatch here and the politicians are mm. able to Play manipulate that language. And aye. So do you think that... The rise in Scotland, the, the the rise in Scotland with the drug deaths, mm-hmm. um, is basically pushing us into a place where we're panicking and just basically going, how do we reduce this? And they're getting the the, the, the wrong they're getting the wrong summer for the, the the equation and saying harm reductions the way forward. I don't think it's a panic situation. I think um, they're they're so close minded to anything else other than harm reduction interventions that the leadership is completely ideologically wedded only to that area. They they know so I mean we saw at the Gabarmati conference, they know so little about recovery. They're not interested in it. They believe true believers, they are true believers that they think that harm, in fact, if you follow their thinking through, and I'm talking about main leaders and they've been open about mm-hmm. this, you know, these are public servants paid by the public purse. They believe that if we just decriminalise, which is another word, you know, despite, you know, the nuance of what people say, it's just another word, way of saying legalising. They actually believe that if we legalise all drugs, that we'll see less deaths. Now, my first and foremost argument to that, and and, and they use this sort of crime, uh, you know, statistics to say, well, if we remove the criminal element from it, then we can regulate, we can standardise, we can give people drugs that we know what we're giving Mm -hmm. them then, we can take the criminal element out of it, we can take the violence out of it. And I'm just like, that is so naive. You know, the minute you've got a state-regulated supply, and this is the language they use, right? State, safe, safe, state-regulated supply, as if this is going to be a kind of panacea, some Mm -hmm. sort of miracle is going to happen here that criminals are all of a sudden going to go, well, actually, we're going to make something stronger, cheaper. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Then the safe-regulated supply. And this is, again, You see that with Street Valley in the new, didn't you? Like, the way they're... (laughs) Now, this whole idea that you can control and manage my use, right? So, or that you can make it safe for me to use is a fundamental denial and delusion of what I'm suffering from because I cannot stop when I start using. Like, I will take your state-regulated safe supply and I will kill myself with it and I'll use on top. It doesn't matter. I mean, know this for... Um, you know, research that's been done in England, like even, you know, with, with methadone, that, that is the first attempt at a safe mm-hmm. regulated supply, um, state regulated supply. And it was never safe. You know, we've seen mere deaths 
uh, with alcohol. It's, it's, with, it's involved in most most deaths. It's, it's involved, involved in most deaths. But you know, the argument would come from them. Well, you've just got to give me a higher dose then, and it's like again, it's this fundamental denial that. I suffer from a condition that demands an insatiable amount of more. There will never be enough. It is uncontrollable. It is unmanageable. I am insatiable. Mm-hmm. And and that's and I think what they what the proponents of decriminalization or legalization are are looking for is something different. So they're they're thinking about people who use drugs recreationally. That's what I was just about to say. <laughs> what about the recreational drug user? I well I'm not interested in them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I'm no I'm absolutely not one bit interested Aye. in them because my constituencies are, are people that are dying. Aye. And who can't get access and choice of treatment. So that's my bag over, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, but fair play to them, you know, wire in, fill your boots if you can ah, use no, no, recreationally. Mm-hmm. Enjoy it every minute of mm-hmm. it, do you know what I mean? Like like we said, you know. They pay- shouldn't really have a point in saying anything really then. If they, like if they, if, if, if they want to use, because I'm all for that, like if somebody wants to go and use drugs and they can function and that blah, blah, blah. Because we see all the time with alcohol, people drink bottles of wine with their dinner and it's, they're clearly alcoholics, but they're, 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 they'll never admit it. Mm-hmm. So you see that quite a lot, and um, I'm all for it. But as you say, it's the, the, they shouldn't have that input at all, and because it is different from. So different constituencies to people who are suffering from addiction, who are utterly obsessed and compulsed to find ways and means to get more drugs. You know, who are low in their own moral standards, who are creating, you know, like the decriminalisation situation that we already have in Scotland. I don't care about any minister, you know, kids on that we don't we do, you know what I mean? Like you can walk down any street and smell right. hash, you know, uh and 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 you know, hard drugs as well. Like you can you're not getting arrested anymore for having a couple of bags, do you know right. what I mean? So we've got it. Um and, and one of the unintended consequences of that is like if you th- well I'll share my own experience, right? So if I've um if I've spent three or four hours trying to get money together to score, right, and I and I score, under the current policy, I am the police officer who catches me is going to take my drugs off me. Now, previously, what he would have done was he would just took my drugs off me and took me to a cell. Now, once I was in that cell, obviously starting to withdraw, um. I would be entitled to a doctor who would give me methadone or whatever, mm. you know, substitute was available. Probably methadone. Now the situation is I get caught by a police officer, they take my my drugs off me that I've probably spent three or four hours to score, may have well have committed crime to score, you know, to get that money together. I'm I'm withdrawn now and I'm in a more desperate state than what I was three or four hours ago. Um so I've now got to go and start that whole process again, so I'm more desperate. I, oh, even more hyper vigilant now and, mm-hmm. and hyper, hyper like to get, I know, I, I know what you mean, I know right. where you're coming from. So I'm I'm still going to, and, you, and you the could, theory you behind this. a more serious crime to get. Exactly, yeah, because I'm more desperate, right? And the theory behind this is that that police officer is going to direct me, and this is what they did in Portugal, right? They did actually direct people then to services who were addicted. Well, obviously that's cool if it's a wee guy that's just scored a bit of hash to smoke at his, you know, his 
Mazda aye, in our party aye. later on that night or whatever, do you know what I mean? Or a couple of lines of coke who, you know, the middle classes. And that's who's driving this. It's them that's driving this aye. policy. The middle classes who are only suffering the way that our communities are suffering. Um, but if, you know, if I'm now in a mere desperate state because my drugs have been taken off me, I've still got to score. I'm going to, you know, I'm... This policy is utter madness. And I'll tell you why it's even mere utter mad madness. We have got a fentanyl crisis in no. the UK. We know it's already it's hit Glasgow. We, we've seen it come into the street supply. So at a time where we have got mere hard drugs, mere powerful drugs coming on our streets, we've got this... And you know what? I don't even think it is a liberal movement. I think it's a deliberate political strategy to um, be a populist policy, but also to stoke another divisive argument with Westminster. Mm -hmm. Now, anybody that knows me knows my politics, right? And I have watched my party destroy itself for the inside. And mm -hmm. it gives me no pleasure to watch this happen. A lot of people spoke about this. Yeah, no pleasure to watch it happen at all. And it's like the last throes of any regime, again, you know, I'm a student of history, they, they, they go to the extremes, right, mm -hmm. to, to cling on to power. They go to populist policies to cling on to power. I don't even think the current Scottish government believe in decriminalisation. I think they're using it to stoke an argument. They know fine well they're civil servants. I know some of the civil servants. They know those four or five pillars that were in the Portuguese model are not available in Scotland. Yeah. This is about politics. It's about politicians politicking and it's about people's lives and they're playing football political football with people's lives. They're continuing to do it. They did it with drug consumption rooms. They're now going to do it with decriminalisation. It's sick. They should be ashamed of themselves. And personally for me, it's put me in a position where I, I'm, I'm now, you know, seeking... I cannot believe in any of the political parties because I see them all doing it. Right. You know, I see them all doing it to one extent or another on this particular issue. I'm sure they're doing it on loads of issues, but... You know, this is the issue that I care about uh, most. Well, it's obviously a question. It was obviously a wee bit further on, but I'll bring it in just now when they, there was a kind of famous moment where you kind of flung the counsellor out of the, the, yeah. the kind of drug. Can you tell us a bit about that? Was that just caused the feelings that's the, the, the kind of, that's been stoked inside you? And maybe is that what's kind of. Um, well, I think it was uh, the main reason why was because um, he came in late, He came, the event was finished. And I was, we were summing up and I had said, you know, we were delivering a report, uh, a year-end report about our advocacy project, which highlights how difficult it actually is to get access and choice of treatment in Scotland. Aye. So I had did a whole presentation on that and he, he bounced in as we were finishing. And, uh, you know, he sort of asked if he could take, take the floor and say a few words. And the first words out of his mouth were, um, well as you all know I've supported Anne-Marie in the campaign from the very start and I, I 
it was it was a total <laughs> like it was a total you know it was one of those moments where you just <laughs> react because I just spun on my heels and I went no you haven't <laughs> it was like a blatant lie you know, know. and I was and he, and he said oh, I've been to your events and I said no you've came to it's funny two. but it's no funny it's actually shocking I he came to two of our events um he maybe even have been to three of the events, but he never spoke to me at any of those events. He never phoned me afterwards. He never wrote to me afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. there was no support. I've, you know, what? so what does support mean now? Does support mean that... Just attending something? Attending at the last minute? No, actually even coming to the event? Was it... Did he hear that the press were there? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, so did did he get a memo saying somebody we need to get somebody for the SNP down there? Who where's the nearest? Aye. You know, because there was a the, the Tories were there, the Greens were there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think there was a Labour, a couple of Labour councils there. So he bounced in at the last minute, and I was just I didn't know the guy. I didn't know his. I did know his Paul. I Aye. knew he was a member of the SNP. Um, but I didn't, you know, any of the guy's history, you know, right. which I was later to learn. Um, and it, it was just the blatancy of the lie that, you know, if you're going to be a politician, you need to learn to lie better than that, mate. Right. And, <laughs> and don't and don't come in at the end of an event and claim that you've support, you support the campaign because you don't. There was actually politicians in the room who had supported the campaign. Right. And they never, they never even stood up and said that. Aye. Do you know what I mean? They just stood up. In fact, they were contrite and humble Aye. enough to say, you're right, we're not doing enough. This is shocking. It's terrible. Aye. So it was like, that's why I reacted because it was so blatant. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. I think most people need to do things like that. I think we need to, a lot of people put these people on a pedestal. They, there's a what I've seen at the higher levels. Mm-hmm. Um, they just they can't get enough of the that they can't get enough of their bullshit. Like they, they talk talk to these politicians and oh we're doing this, we're doing it. it's just as if they just want their gratitude. Or they're, they're, they're chasing something that there's absolutely there's no substance to it at all. Well, um, I think they think that if they're connected to them, then they'll you know that the, somehow they'll be favoured upon. And I think we've saw that in Scottish politics that there's a kind of courtiership um, that if you hang about with the right people and say the right things then you'll get you know rewarded or your project or your your career or whatever will be rewarded and and you know I've never been one to hang about with the right people no you know but just, why would you when that goes against what you talk about earlier your morality and everything that you've worked on so hard yeah. why would you sell that out well for? I think I think the drug problem in Scotland is everybody's problem as far as the political parties are concerned Definitely. I think they're all responsible um, I think you know I, I think that there is a real problem with the cultural leadership in Scotland who are wedded to the ideology of only harm reduction Um and I think the balance has to, all I'm asking for is a balanced treatment system right. where people can get access to harm reduction interventions, but equally they can get access to recovery-orientated services and communities and detox and you know all the good stuff that helps us get well. So, But we don't have that. And and I think what politicians do is they make it about naloxone, they make it about drug consumption rooms, they make it about decriminalisation and they totally, totally. ignore they totally ignore totally. the fact that you kind of get access. The rich get rehab, the poor get methadone. I was in a meeting no long ago, <clears throat> and they were talking about it was pr- prison. How how we, how do we get stuff out of prison? And 
um, the 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 I can't remember the chief nurse or whatever for you, the, the prison system could go and started talking about naloxone and started talking. No, I was in prison for fifteen years, Anne Marie. I'd never seen any, I've never seen anybody administer naloxone. Like I've never seen a prisoner ever administer naloxone. I've seen the staff doing it. Um, I've seen the staff doing it when people are full of Valium and there's no opiate in the system. It's as if they don't know the difference between an opiate overdose and and, and like somebody well, taking a seizure for benzos. And this is the thing, the majority of people are dying in Scotland for benzo overdose, which naloxone doesn't touch. They're also dying in their own homes alone, so there's nobody mm -hmm. there to administer naloxone. So it's a red herring, it's what, you know, political terms, it's a red herring. It's a diversionary, you know, it's... A... It's definitely got its place, um, yeah. but to... Put, I didn't know that, and, we had, and I, I'm quite shocked that that's like you get 50 million, and that's the amount that's uh, you would think half of that would be going into rehabs, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> I certainly would have thought that. Well, like, it would be if, if you had a, and I'm not saying to take half that money away from harm reduction interventions, I think we need another 50 million in Glasgow oh, definitely. for rehab. Aye, definitely. So, I'm what I'm advocating for is double the investment, stop accepting the crumbs, and, mm. and actually, what all the organizations are doing is. They're working in isolation, conflict, and competition each other, and fighting for the crumbs. And I'm mm. at there's a whole buffet available. See if we can get a bit of unity. I know a bit of unity between the recovery community organisations, a bit of unity between the treatment um, providers. I agree. If we had unity, we could argue for a bigger buffet, a bigger table. Mm. But the way that they dish up the funding, the way structurally it's you know, it's all set up mm. is to cause diversion and disunity and separation. Even if you don't go on and your your views on recovery are different, your views, it's all about the same thing. It's all getting people to a level where they are happy in life. Yeah. So we need to learn to put, as you say, we need to learn to put our views to the side a wee bit and, and unit and become united in a way that they can, you know. Yeah, I think unfortunately we've got a couple of things in place in Scotland that makes that really tricky. So, because we've got Scottish Drugs Forum, Scottish Recovery Consortium, Scottish Families, right? These three quangos, which we don't have the equivalent of in any other UK country, by the way. These are kind of government. In fact, they're policy actors. Like there was a paper written by. Ian McPhee and Barry Sheridan called placebo policies, and these these people are policy actors. So if you really if you really wanted a strategic organisation to advocate for drug users and their families, you would have it as one one yeah, organisation. You wouldn't have three separate organisations. Um, it's ridiculous actually that we've got three separate organisations. In fact, if if I was had my way, I'd scrap them all. Right. And I'd create some sort of citizens panel for it. Do you know what I mean? I would just because there's we produced a report in two thousand and nineteen when we started the "You Keep Talking, We Keep Dying" campaign, and we held meetings in Postal and Mary Hill and the community centre. And the community told us what the problems were and what the solutions were. There was twenty three recommendations, right? It was a 10-page report. It was very, very simple, very straightforward. Here's the problem. Here's how you solve it. 23 recommendations. Um, three years later, we got the Drug Death Task Force report. Everything that we had said was already there. They, only the, right. theirs had 700 pages. I think there was over 700 shoulds in it. Sh the word should. Now, if anybody that's done any therapeutic right. work, they'll know no. that the shoulds are mm. like 
nonsense, no, you know. No. So I we we told them what needed to be done in 2019. They have actually implemented naloxone was one of those things. They have implemented some of what we recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, probably about 10 of them, including a minister, a dedicated minister. But again, crucially, we called it a recovery minister. So somebody who was focused on recovery. And of mm-hmm. course, we've got a drugs minister who's uh, very focused on just dividing and conquering and mm-hmm. saying all the right things, virtue signaling, but no actually changing anything. I've tried to get, I've wrote to a few MP, MSPs and if any of them are watching, I'd love to see them coming on, especially the, 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 the kind of, the, the drugs minister for a better word, he would be welcome to come on because um, they don't seem to want to answer the hard questions when you put it to them, they don't like the questions that, the tough well, they questions. always say, they always say, oh, we're, we, if there's no one size fits all, there's no silver bullets, we need to, we need a sort of, we need all the choices and all the chances, but then they only invest in harm reduction interventions. Know. You know, so it's like I they say all the right things. Totally. They virtue signal all the right things and they say all the right things in the debate, but follow the money. And you catch a politician on on the in the corridor with me and James were talking about this, and you catch a pot and he'll tell you mm-hmm. it's no working. We're mm-hmm. doing this rang, we're doing that rang. You go, why are you not stick your neck out? But it's mm-hmm. not a vote winner. Mm-hmm. You're not going to win the votes for it. So the people are scared to say, look, what, what, this is my policy. My policy is going to be put my money into rehabilitation. Because you're yeah. quite rightly so, you're going to get people going, what about my granddad that's living down there and mm-hmm. he's lived his life, worked, he never touched anything and he's Aye. down there. And I Aye. get that I get that argument, but there's enough to go about. Well, drug users and drug treatment are not sexy, right? And, and, you know, if you're talking about splitting... Uh, investment from you know drug treatment services into you know like hospitals libraries elderly services and all that like you said it's no sexy but I think this disconnect is really important when the politicians and the councillors and anybody outside the sector hears the word treatment they think of rehab and detox so they think there's hundreds of money going into that and there's no No. it's going into harm reduction interventions and I think if the general public knew that they would argue for mere investment to go into rehabilitation Mm. especially in Glasgow we've reached a tipping point here there's no family in this I know that's not affected by this in one way or another no it's so true Um, I mean I've got I've got a couple of friends who are in the midst of addiction and my friend, he says he tried to basically phone me, I need rehab. And they're like, you can't, it doesn't work like that. You need to come in, you need to start using, so you need to get funding. You, you need to jump all these other hoops. You uh, need to try everything else aye. first before we'll give you rehab. Obviously, <laughs> well, you know, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. just put him off. He just said, I'm not, he just went, Sean, I, so I says, mm-hmm. you need to do you need to do this, you need to do that. Um, and I'm trying to put, point him in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And he just went, Fuck that! Like that's like, well, like the, per- that. the like, person too who's much. they're ill and they're sick and they don't no. even to get into some of the Christian rehabs or the twelve step, you know, the housing benefit funding ones. You've got to phone every day and show you're committed. You know, we wouldn't do that with heart disease. We wouldn't do that with cancer. No. Do you know what I mean? And these the addiction is actually more lethal, more dangerous than heart disease and cancer. In fact, I would argue that addiction probably causes a lot of heart disease and cancer. It's probably the biggest public health concern that we have, but because we attach this, um, these 
I don't know. Like, it's but, like but, a crime but, stigma we put to into it. It's like, you, it's, it's we're, like, we're in so much denial about it. Aye. No, definitely. Um, so, no, it was a great wee back conversation there, Anne-Marie, but I want to take you to your own charity, uh, Favour UK, how that started, how it came about, um, and just some of the kind of clientele that you've seen come through your doors, some of the success stories you've seen. Well, I started it because uh, I didn't actually want to work in the addiction sector, right? And I ended up, whilst I was at uni doing my master's in history, um, in a wee part-time post uh, as an alcohol and drug development coordinator down in Ayrshire. And it gave me a, a taste of advocacy. There was a young guy who was on a methadone script who wanted to get his script at the same time every day so as he could go to college. And see, in order for me to get that boy that script at that same time every day, it, it was like a year and a half's worth of work, a pulling 22 organisations into a room together, Oof. right? So my very first advocacy was for a young guy who was trying to go on with his life, who was right. semi-stable on a methadone script. Now, that activated me in a way that I'd, I had no knowledge of. I had never went to treatment. I'd never went to rehab. I'd got clean in the rooms. Um, so I, I entered a whole new world of total disbelief, you know, that, and and recognition as well that there was all these people calling themselves experts that had no idea how to help people recover. Right. You know, recover. They might have been experts in addiction, but they didn't know the first no. thing about recovery. So I, I went on and did another qualification at Glasgow Uni, managing drug and alcohol services. Um, Whilst I was working at that wee community org, Fulham Community Health House, um, brilliant wee outfit set up by ex-minors, schooled me actually in a lot of labour politics, um, which was really, really good for me at the time. Um, but I'm SNP. I've always been SNP. Right. You know, so... Um, so, but I did, you know, I learned loads of those guys. Um, they were really, really good to me, but... And within a few years, maybe about eight or nine years, I had got one of the sort of top strategic roles within uh, Ayrshire and Arm Health Board as the Alcohol and Drug Partnership, um, within the Alcohol and Drug Partnership. So I, I sort of seen inside the tent Aye. and uh, how dysfunctional it was. And it was at the time when the Road to Recovery had come in. So having, I think I was probably the first person in visible recovery who was employed in you know, the strategic roles. Uh, so it was a wee bit of virtue signalling, I think, from the women that employed me at the time. Uh, but what I realised within that two years that I was there was that I could write about a recovery-orientated integrated system on paper because that was all the buzzwords at the time. Aye. And I could make Ayrshire and look as if it had one, but nothing changed in practice. So, th uh, right? so the ground level, nothing changed. Nothing changed, nothing changed at all, but it all looked all shiny, all dancy and all great. So I thought if I can't change this in one of the top sort of strategic positions within the health board here, how can I influence this better? And I thought, right, okay, set up a membership charity. There was a charity in, uh, in America called Faces and Voices of Recovery. I was in correspondence with them anyway because I'd started the recovery walks Aye. in 2009, um, the UK recovery walk. So I was doing that in my spare time. And uh, at that point, oh, it's quite mental actually what happened. I thought, I need to do something here. 
I need to influence from outside the tent and I need to do it in a big way. I need mm-hmm. to go national and try and do it nationally. Now, what happened then was I got, found out my partner was cheating on me. I got cancer in my womb, cancerous cells in my womb. I had to have a full hysterectomy. I lost my job. Well, my contract came to an end um, within the NHS and I moved on to a private um uh, in the private sector so I lost my partner my health my job and therefore I had to sell my house that all happened in the space of four months good and um I was like okay that stuff that I've been doing in my spare time around the walks mm-hmm. I need to set that up properly and I need to do it nationally I had 15 grand savings I lived off that for the first year and um, I set up the charity with the intention to become Faces and Voices of Recovery, but I knew we didn't have a mandate to call ourselves that, so I called us the UK Recovery Walk Charity, mm-hmm. and I focused on campaigning um, in a very positive way. Right. Uh, you know, making recovery visible was our first strapline. Uh, there are many pathways to recovery, all are a cause for celebration. So really positive messaging around, you know, we can and do recover. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until um, 2019. So that was in 2013 I set the charity up. 2019 was the first time I had six months wages in the banks. Right up until that point, I went month to month, no, 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 if I was getting paid or no. Uh, I paid myself a very, very small wage, 16300 a year. Um Amazing dedication. And oh, it was total madness, total insanity, but it strengthened my faith and it strengthened my commitment. Um, it's more and at the that point, you've became the day, but it's like oh, it's, you can see that. Like it's, forged in steel, mm. man, forged in steel. But at that point, I had six months wages and I, I brought in somebody to help me for three months. My board were like, are you mental? You've only got, you know, this first time ever you've had six months wages in the bank. Your wages are pittance anyway. My board were always fighting with me to raise my wages. And I was like, no, 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 no. I didn't need it. Do you know uh, what I mean? Not because I'm rich. I just didn't need it. <laughs> um, I live quite simply. It's just me and my boy. Uh, or it was just me and my boy at that point. It's just me now. Um, so... Aye, so I just, and I built the membership and I built the influence and I built the authority in a bureaucratic way um, and I built it through relationships. Um, There was always a disconnect in Scotland. Uh, I wasn't able to build those relationships in Scotland. What we were doing wasn't welcome in Scotland and, and of course, running parallel to us growing and developing was, you know, there was another quango set up in Scotland. Right that had similar aims to us and started to um, mimic what we did. Uh, it's a terrible culture for still, people stealing ideas and stuff, isn't it? It really is. Well, I, I would think it's more cynical than that. I think the government saw what we were doing and wanted to try and harness it and create their own version of it. I know. I, would, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it for a minute. I, I, you see it quite a lot. Um and anybody that you speak to that's a successful person, and even when I started up this podcast, people were saying to me, Sean, watch what you're doing, and mm-hmm. people, and then you do get the wee kind of vibes of people saying, oh, I think I might do that, and um, which is fine, like, get, yeah. get out of there, get the word out there, it's whatever we the can, do you know what I mean? Um, pl- and me creating this platform has been, been good, but as you say, that's, I've made name one, there's absolutely no money on it. Um, hopefully one day that, that might 
change, but at this moment in time, there's nothing. So or any yeah. money we get, it gets plowed back, back in. I good, um, good, and that and that's what we did. You know, my board were always sort of pushing me, but it's been it's been a real struggle. You know, I'm getting a decent wage now. Don't know how long that'll last, but I'm the new. Um, but our main, our main, um, we've got three main aims as a charity. The first and foremost is to make recovery visible, to offer hope. The other two aims are to advocate for access and choice of services. So that's always what we're trying to do. We campaigned, as I said, really, really positively in the beginning, uh, right up until 2019 when the drug deaths... My, my mother died in 2018 and um, the drug death stats were horrendous and, uh, and you know, we just it took off for there, basically no. the negative campaign and the sort of uh, what people call outspoken or whatever they call me. And I know there's people, don't, you know, I'm Marmite and... That does bother me because my heart is gentle as, you know, you know, I am bothered by what mm. people think of me, do you know what I mean? And they, I'm accused of having political motivations or self-aggrandizement, self mm. you know, and nothing could be further to the truth. This I don't is, see any of that. I don't see uh, any conversation I've ever had is all been run about, um, all been run about, the recovery world and how it gets how, how to better it. I've never ever seen anything like that. And to be honest with you, Anne Marie, that before this even went up, I don't know, I don't know if you mind me saying this, but we can take it if you don't. You were the first person to come at me and say and offer me money. Nice. Um you were actually the first person to do that and offer me a sponsor. Nice. Um and that hadn't been the podcast hadn't even up went up yet. There was nothing. So yeah. That's um, where your heart is. Um, I totally, so and that's, that's what we wanted to be. So we were the first sort of recovery community organisation in the UK. We provided like lots of toolkits for other people to start their own. We provided support and guidance. You know, we run with about 100 volunteers that helped me across the year. You know, if I was, if I was this megalomaniac, narcissistic head, political head case that some people think I'm, I wouldn't have like literally... 100 volunteers helping me no. um, so I and you know we've always been wanting to grow a movement Aye. you know and create that unity um, and, I, and I think in time that will happen it probably won't happen under my leadership because I'm a I'm a West you know it's the West Coast of Scotland I'm a woman like, like going back to the stuff we spoke about earlier I don't think I think we're not there yet and the recovery community is is very dominated by men as well but there are great men in that community who love me mm -hmm. and support me and who are at my back all the time you know and um, they're brilliant communicators they're steadfast they're strong strong men who I adore um, so I think in time we will see a shift mm -hmm. and you know maybe look back and go oh God somebody referred to me and I love this right so and it's a guy that I really respect referred to me as um what was it uh, La Passionara. So, you know, the the civil, the Spanish Civil War, there's there was a woman shouting and bawling <laughs> about trying to bring the two sides together. And that's how I see my role. You know, I I we we produced something in uh, I think it was 2018, called the UK Recovery Declaration of Rights. Now, the Scottish Government are involved in creating this Aye. something similar at the moment. Uh, 
And I'm like, eh, we've already did that. And what we did was we got people from the harm reduction services and the two sort of extremes of the movement, the extreme abstentionists and the extreme harm reductionists. Mm -hmm. And we brought them together under this declaration. There was 148 organisations signed up to it. Thousands of individuals signed up to it. Um, and I, I think that's always been my role, to try and push us into the progressive, progressive middle ground that says... Oh, harm reduction interventions are valid. I'm not so keen on moving into, you know, uh, decriminalisation mm. and legalisation because it's a it's mission creep for us. Uh, what I want is services to be available, choices and chances. The more choices and chances people have to get well, the better. And the more hope, the more we can show that recovery is doable right. for people like me, right? I'm an ordinary working class lassie, you know, brought up with right. good values, uh, ended up going to uni and studying history, for God's sake. That's normally what rich people do. There's, no. You know, like, you don't, if you're a working class lassie, you don't get to go to uni and study. You're always focused on, right, what am I going to do as a career? Uh, you know, the nursing uh, and things or, like or, that, you know. You know, something that's going to make you money. And and because I had that, that uh, recovery the 12 steps in particular threw me like a stalker up at that point. I was five years clean before I went to uni, before I was in any headspace to mm. go to uni because it took me that long to sort of find my, my footing in recovery. I, I was, I had so much trauma. Um, so it was, I was like four or five years clean before I, I could breathe. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to be all right here, you know, mm -hmm. um, and even think about a future. And to study the subjects that I studied, you know, like philosophy and psychology mm -hmm. and social policy and history and women's history and you know like that's that's stuff that rich people do history art for god's sake do you know <laughs> what i mean i was like you don't get to study that <laughs> no. if you're a, like ordinary working class and but i think there was a grounding in that and a, a sort of an awakening in that i remember going to the vna museum when i was a few months clean the museum in london and going right we saw this art stuff about you know, what are they all going on about? <laughs> and I was standing in front of the bio tapestry, <laughs> massive big tapestry, and I mean it was, I mean it's this, it's this piece of work is phenomenal, right? And I, I went, I was looking at it, I was going, ah, it's alright. I went up close to it, and I was like, ah, it's alright. And I was walking back and forward, right? And I'm looking at it, and it was this wee tiny stitch. And it suddenly occurred to me there was something in my brain that just thought, well, I'm really even if you can't appreciate the art side of things at the moment, you know, like think of yourself as that wee tiny stitch. There's right. something in that bigger picture that you're not seeing yet. And I've, oh, I've took that with me, right. you know, that, that lesson that I can only see a wee tiny part of the picture. Um, and I might not be able to recognize the full beauty in it, which is, right. you know, there's something important about that. I also, that same day I went and stood in front of Michelangelo's Three Graces, and the bust of mm -hmm. David, right? Michelangelo's mm -hmm. bust of David. And I was saying, right, you know, God, if you're there, show me what all the fuss is about art. Because, I mean, it's nice and that, but I'm not getting, you know, why do we be passionate aye. about it? And all of a sudden, then I, you know, I was like, you know, all of a sudden, the three graces came to life mm -hmm. and I could see it breathing. And I was like, whoa. And I had to sort of pull my eyes away and go, what? You know, like, am I seeing that right? 
and I could see this alabaster, I think it's alabaster or is it marble, I'm not sure, but whatever it was, it was breathing. These women came to life and the exact same thing happened with uh, the bust of Michelangelo and I was just like, right, okay, you need to just keep an open mind here. Aye. You know, and I think that has instilled in me a kind of curiosity and a, a willingness to learn. You know, I'm not saying I'm getting all this right, but I do know there's a disparity and there's an inequality in what people can access and what they can't access mm -hmm. and what they have choice of and what they don't have choice of. And that's all I, all I want is people to have... I mean, I get cleaning the rooms, which is totally mm -hmm. free. Do you know, know what I mean? But I was 25 and I was surrounded by therapists and mm -hmm. people that worked in rehabs and people that had suffered the way I had suffered. I realised that that was pure gold. You know, mm -hmm. it was the creme de la, la creme of the recovery, the recovery mm -hmm. community that I had access to. That's that the gold standard instead of the methadone gold standard, like they talk about, like. As well, in... I, I love that because the the evidence space. You know, they use this the evidence space. The methadone's the ev the gold standard the evidence space, and they use that phrase. Darren McGarvey said, "With a certain muscularity, as if it can be argued way," and I'm just like, well. It can be argued way if you understand what addiction actually is, because if you understand what addiction actually is, you will know that there's an insatiable, unstoppable craving. Once I put that into my body, whatever it is, whether it be methadone, alcohol, I, I illustrate it by saying to people would be day training, right? So I'll say to a room full of professionals, right? Mm -hmm. Many of you keep chocolate biscuits. Now, half the room will put their half up, and I'll say, right, who doesn't keep chocolate? Biscuit, biscuits in the house and the other half of the room will put and I say to the guys who don't keep chocolate biscuits in the house why don't you keep chocolate biscuits in the house and they say because why is it a start I can't stop and I'm like it's the exact same thing it's the exact same thing like when I put alcohol in it my body, this didn't happen with every substance mm -hmm. but it happened with a lot of substances it would be like this phenomenon of craving would kick in I would be like I need more right. and, and I wouldn't stop until I either passed it or my money ran out. Mm. And see, because I was a workaholic, it was rare that my money ran out. Aye. It was always working. I see so you could rattle all sorts of dough on, just mm. like, I know. Mm -hmm. No, it's, um, it's, 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 I think that the, the work, a lot of people can argue with Anne-Marie and stuff like that and see what they want, but there's no many people put the, the study and stuff in and, and, and looked and read that as well read as you on the subject. So, um, I think there's a certain element of, like, I do think people in recovery become purposeful, right? And it has been my primary purpose to help the addict who still suffers. That's my schooling mm. in recovery. And I've been guided in a way that I never thought I would be guided. Like, I didn't want to work in the addiction field. It's it's like, I've, I'm living by a philosophy where I'm mm. handing my will and my life over every day, right? And I'm saying, right, is this where you want me to go? God, and I'm using that word, and I mm -hmm. don't know who that person, that thing is, but I'm like, right, okay, I'm, I feel like I'm being guided mm -hmm. by another force. I don't know what that force is. Um, and this is where I've landed, you know, and, and it takes me down various avenues. And the when somebody tells me methadone is a gold standard, then I'm looking at boys and lasses, that I've got clean me who are telling me what it was like on methadone because I never used it. Mm -hmm. And but there's a professional telling me that methadone's gold standard and they're telling me that their life on methadone was horrendous. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're they're not saying that there wasn't a welcome intervention at the time. 
They're not. They're not saying it was a terrible thing. They're not saying it was, but there's what where I see where I was blessed was I didn't enter into that system mm. where I became dependent and codependent on a system. I I went to the rooms and right. ultimately what I was given was you know I remember I was sitting one day with my sponsor and she said to, and it was totally profound and life changing because my story's horrendous right I've mm -hmm. touched on the the basics of it the day but you know there, it's pretty horrendous and uh, she said I was told or you know I'd done my step four and five where and uh, she said right so what's it going to be Anne Marie and I said what what do you mean she said well. You know, that's a victim, that's a proper victim story. You could that's you could take that your whole life, you know, like I mean that violence, sexual abuse, mm. the whole shooting match. That's a brilliant victim story, you dine it in that your whole life. But you could take responsibility for your life and not let that stop you for, you know, from being who the person you were meant to be if mm. that if that hadn't happened. And it was it was such a punch in the gut, actually. It wasn't like a big, oh, hello moment. Oh, this is wonderful. I was like, you fucking bitch, man. I know. No, I've had it myself. Do you know what I mean? I'm mm. like, you bitch. You're, like, you're telling me I need to be responsible for my life. Mm. I mean, if you knew what I had suffered, you would mm. need, you know, uh, you wouldn't ask me to do that. You wouldn't, you would be like, you know, uh, whatever. But um, well, my, partner, my partner, my partner said it to me in prison. Um, I lost my pill and um, she said, Sean, you do know that you're going into this victimhood, victim mentality that you've got going on. Um, you're going to stop it at some point. And I said, what? I like it the same as you. What do you mean? How dare you? I mean, been, been in prison for, for a crime I never committed, blah, blah. I've done this amount of years. And she went, but are you going to just let that eat you alive? And I've seen guys who have been through the system and been miscarriage, been miscarriage as justice victims and the poison and resentment yeah. that they go on to live. And I think, as Gabber Matty says, it doesn't matter, it's what's the pain. Yeah. So you've got to take responsibility and agency yeah. for that pain that you've got and yeah. and realise it's, it's there. It's, it's no Absolutely. one to just disappear. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And if you want to go and dine out, as you say, and get a date with narcotics yeah. and whatever uh, aye and everybody will feel sorry for you nobody aye. would blame you for I know. using Anne-Marie nobody's going to blame you if you want to pick up again she's and been through the work she's been through the mill she's been through this aye. Aye. you've you chosen not to do that aye and, but the, what you spoke about there about forgiveness is so essential to my healing like there was a guy at the conference the other day who was you know who was not wanting to forgive I know and I thought, well, you're not going to heal then, pal. And that was what I needed. I needed women who would tell me that if so when it when I when I was being asked to, you know, go through that process of forgiveness for the person that mm -hmm. harmed me, especially the sexual abuse, I was like, you wouldn't if you knew what he'd done to me as a wee person, mm -hmm. you would not ask me to forgive him. And they're like, well, that's fine, you know, like it's going, to, it's going to kill you, it's going to mm -hmm. poison you for the rest of your life then. And I started to understand it intellectually right. and then it was suggested to me and I wasn't really open to it. It took a while to be open to it. You know, if if you've not got the willingness to pray mm -hmm. for, you know, that mm -hmm. bastard, because mm -hmm. that was the way mm -hmm. I felt about him, you know. 
if you don't have the willingness to pay for them, pay for the willingness to get the willingness. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, that was like another. I felt like that was a back alleyway. Do you know what I mean? I was like, no, that's not fair. You're asking me to do that. But I did, and I did get the willingness, and I did pray. And, um, and it I is a long process, isn't it? When you start it, it's a, it's a long process. And, well, um, for me, it took about two years. It wasn't that long. By the end of the first two years of my recovery, I'd completely forgave him. That's amazing. See, I, I was talking to Fritzy Hotsman the other night. She was on a podcast, and Fritzy's amazing. She's an absolute lover. Um, but she is all about just kind of like, Sean, man, just forgive right now. Just do it. And I'm like, I'm like, just do it. Like, it's, and it's like, it's so true, but you're like, it was, it was ah, a bit, like, there's a bit more to it than that. I know, I know, say, but, I know. But, but uh, you can intellectually understand. Totally. There's a journey for the head to the heart. Isn't Definitely. There? So, intellectually, I could see how the anger was poisoning me and how the hurt and the grief of it was hurting me. But it did take, and for me, it happened like a gift, right? It wasn't that it's something that I gave myself, like I, or I gave him forgiveness. Mm. It was something that I feel a higher power gave me. It was like a Aye. gift of peace mm-hmm. and serenity, understanding, compassion, love, forgiveness. You know, that came know. to me because I was open to it. Definitely. You know. Um, so obviously we're kind of coming up, it's been a brilliant podcast. I've loved Anne-Marie and you're like, you're words of wisdom on this subject. We could sit and speak to you all day. But I'm just want to kind of touch, kind of finally on Arco. Mm-hmm. Um, and just what what happened there with that? Because that was kind of that was something that could have been really good. Well, so it's the Association of Recovery Community Organisations, which would essentially be a union for people in recovery and their organisations to to be, you know, part of a unified organising force to challenge government and the sector. Way basically, what's happened is I have went to numerous funders over the years to get funding for it and they don't see the value or the need for it. Now that's probably for a couple of reasons. They've probably been told that we're not really needed or that we're a wee you know, sort of add-on and there, there's no need to organise and mobilise us, you know. That, but and over the years we've had volunteers that have helped to shape it and develop it and but we actually need a dedicated worker like a dedicated development worker totally. like a union like somebody that used to work in the unions or somebody that's retired for the unions or you know somebody who can actually bring us all together and we've had we've met we've started meeting there's about 20 organizations that have already signed up to it across the UK not just Scotland and we have started to meet sporadically, you know, as and when required, and we share, and and that's it's mainly as a support right. network, right? It's, it has the potential to be an organising, mm-hmm. unifying force politically to argue for funding the way that they have in America. The the recovery community organisations in America get seven percent of the overall treatment budget. If we get that, it would be massive, and that's Good, the reason why we need to organise and mobilise to argue for that. But in the meantime, what we're doing is sharing resources with each other. So we're sharing like toolkits, social media help, you know, like information and support. Like, for instance, we had one uh, a few months ago and it was we had a bid writer come Mm -hmm. and give like a a 10 top tip thing, you know. And so we're doing it. We're using it as a support network at the moment, but it could be so much more than that. And um, 
I just I need to get funding to get a development officer or I need to get somebody who's committed or as mad as me who's willing to take it forward and organise it in a very organised, politicised way. Because mm -hmm. um, I do think that recovery community organisations are the future. I don't think we can continue with these centralised services that are only offering um, the bare minimum or, or only offering, and, I, and I'm talking about throughout the UK actually, I think even in England there's still a lot that's missing from the treatment system there. And I think the recovery community organisations, there's a framework there in, in ARCO, in the Association of Recovery Community Organisations that could be built on. Uh, and at the moment it is. Now, there's something, you know, it's great. There's something called LEROs that currently exists. But again, it's not run by people in recovery. <laughs> it's set up by academics. And, you know, at the moment they're... But uh, we're all different bunch as well. What in the academics? They're different as Aye. well. They've got their different thought process. Well, I love it. The guys who've set it up, in particular David Bess, I've got tremendous love and respect for him. You know, like his work has been phenomenal. What he's done in the UK to raise the debate around recovery organisations and the value of recovery organisations. But we we need to organise and mobilise ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't need other people to do it for us. And at the moment, what we've got is a kind of instead of a grassroots movement we've got an astroturf movement right. um, so there's a fair old bit of astroturf going about and until we get organised and mobilised ourselves we're not going to really advance but this is all growing pains this is right. all embryonic it's still, we're still in our infancy as a movement right. we're, we're only I would say we started the walks in 2009 so as far as movements goes it's still really young we've got a lot of Would you encourage anybody watching this to come forward and get in touch with you? Oh that, god that, 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 that would kind of like to be involved I, in that Do you know what people come forward all the time saying I want to help and I'm like, right, okay, how can you help? What skills have you got? So don't come forward and say, I want to help. Tell me how you're going to help. Mm -hmm. Come forward and tell me how you're going to do it. Um, and uh, have a think about what you want to do and how you want to help. And then I'll help you action it. Because, you know, like I said, we're a volunteer-led mm -hmm. organisation and we're as democratic as possible, you know. like At the moment, I've got somebody, a volunteer doing our social media and she's off in all sorts of directions and I'm just watching what's happening there, you know, She's right. and she's doing a great job. Um, but we are at the mercy of people's goodwill and, and and as long as you're coming with goodwill, it can't go wrong. No, brilliant. So um, I always kind of just give the, 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 the last kind of wee bit to, to yourself, Anne-Marie, if you any messages that you would just like, anything, anything that we've missed out or anything that you'd like to say, um, I always just give the guest the kind of the last word. Yeah, Sean. Um, the right to recovery bill is um something I'd like to talk about. So, first thing I want to say is you know that it's the myth that it's became you know known as a Tory bill. So that's the first thing I would like to demystify. Um, we took this bill, Stevie Wishart and I wrote it and it was mainly based on Stevie's um, experience in homelessness law and him seeing how that could be applied. There was a young guy who died on Christmas Day um, and that more or less inspired Stevie to look at how we could use the law 
to make sure in the same way that people get access to a home or a roof over their head, to give people the same type of access to treatment. Um, so we looked at the old bill that Rosemary Byrne had put together, uh, socialists from the Socialist Party back in the, I think it was the mid-90s, Rosemary Byrne did that. And we, look at, we looked at, from what we could see from the outside, at least the reasons why it failed. Um, and we tried to navigate that when we wrote the new bill. But we did take the new bill to other parties, you know, and in fact, all the other parties that we, we showed it to members of the Scottish Parliament from the SNP and from the Labour Party, and it was actually the Tories that took us up on it. Now, the thing that most people will only understand about that, because I certainly never, um, was that in order to table a bill, your best shout is to use the opposition. Um, and unfortunately or fortunately, whatever way you, you swing, um, the Tories are the opposition currently in Scotland. So that's why it's them that's bringing the bill forward. Now, the SNP, the current Scottish government, mainly made up of the SNP, claim to want to be tackling this crisis. Now, this bill... And the other myth about it that I'd like to challenge is that it's somehow going to prevent harm reduction services or harm reduction interventions from being funded. And quite frankly, that is preposterous and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it would actually make sure in law, not just in, you know, at the whim of local councillors or local budgets, it would make sure in law the harm reduction interventions are available, including drug consumption rooms, anything deemed by Scottish ministers. So there's an opening there. You know, the stuff that we already have, like substitute prescriptions and, you know, clean needles and wound care and, you know, all of that. But crucially, what this bill would do would it be give people access and choice of all pathways that might help them. So currently in Scotland, um, and certainly in Glasgow, which I'm using, I always use Glasgow as a microcosm because we've got the best of worlds and the worst of worlds here in Glasgow Addiction Treatment Services. It would give people a legal right to access services that they are currently like hen's teeth, as I said earlier, you have a one in six and a half thousand chance of getting access to rehab. Um, gosh knows what it is for detox services because there's so few detox beds. Um, so it would give people the right to access community detox, inpatient detox, and crucially residential rehabilitation. Now, there's no hierarchy in this bill that says that one of those things would come above the other, whether it be the harm reduction interventions or the actual residential rehab and treatment. There's no hierarchy involved in the law. It would say, if we passed it, that you would have access and choice to them all. So the two main myths about this bill is it's a Tory bill. It's no a Tory bill. I'm no a Tory. If you're interested in 
you know, what I think about the Tories, go and read the Holyrood article that I did. Um, just, you know, and you'll see more in depth how this bill came about. And uh, the other main thing is that it's somehow it's going to stop us from investing in harm reduction services. And again, nothing could be further from the truth. So those are the two main things I would like to ask if people care about this issue, that they write to their local MSP and they ask them to support the Right to Recovery Bill. It should be getting tabled at the Scottish Parliament at any moment. It's already been through the consultation process. I think it got 78% support during the consultation process. That support came from the homeless sector, the poverty sector, the, every church in Scotland supported it, a lot of civic Scotland supported it. So it would fundamentally change our addiction treatment system. And, you know, you hear people, especially politicians all the time, saying it's a game changer. And it's no, it's usually a red herring or a dead cat or, you know, some sort of diversionary or divisionary topic Um but this is actually a game changer and people all across the UK and Europe are watching very, very closely what happens with this. Because if this was passed, it would be not just groundbreaking in Scotland, game changer in Scotland. It would actually lead the way and Scotland could then claim to be truly a progressive nation when it came to treating people with addiction and giving them access and choice of services. So those are the two main things I'd like to dispel about this bill. It is not a Tory bill and it will not prevent harm reduction and interventions from being funded at all. Quite conversely, it would do the opposite. It would bring massive amounts of funding to the addiction field and the sooner the addiction field wakens up to that fact, the better. No, Anne-Marie, honestly, I'd just love to thank you for coming on. Uh, it's been a brilliant podcast and I think your message is, is one for everybody here. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking me, man. <laughs>